0: Hello. A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimist's Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay. Enjoy. This episode
1: is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage
0: This is Pessimists Archive, a history show about why people resist new things. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. Remember 2008? Ah, those were the good old days. Back when life was simpler when things just made more sense, you know? The iPhone 3G was the hot new thing. Tiger Woods was winning championships and HBO had just ordered a pilot for a show called Game of Thrones. Yes, a very different time. But something new and terrifying was on the horizon. It kept company executives up at night. It made them fear for the future. They were looking out of their corner offices and down onto the street and it was as if they saw an invading army on the approach. An army made up of subhumans, the likes of which had never Ever been seen before. And what was this army? The dead are coming for us all. No, no. It was even scarier than the dead. It was millennials. People's
2: minds aren't made for problems that large.
0: I know Tyrion, but it was true. The millennials were coming. Back then in 2008, they were beginning to enter the workforce just as the baby boomer generation was retiring, which means companies were in for a sea change. Out were going the loyal, hardworking, dependable generation of baby boomers, and in were coming a bunch of lazy kids. and because corporate execs had no idea what to do next, they called this guy for help.
3: So there was this whole hubbub in you know going on in every, in, you know with every hiring manager and every manager in the, you know, in, in the universe saying, "What are we going to do about these young kids?":
0: That's Ira Wolf. He's a business consultant and founder of a company called Success Performance Solutions. And he's the kind of guy that companies hire when they're trying to figure out a problem. So around 2008, when Ira was 58 years old, many executives started calling him because they weren't sure what to do with all of these millennials. Do they hire these kids? I mean, it it seems like they have to, but can they trust them? And so Ira looked into it and thought, oh boy, here comes trouble. Most of the information
3: at the time was... You know, these the millennials at that point were mostly, you know, either teenagers or just getting out of college. And they were this horrible, spoiled, rotten, narcissistic, egotistical, lazy generation.
0: So Ira decides to write a book about how multiple generations of workers can coexist in the workplace. This way, he figures, he can help everyone navigate this new minefield. He calls the book Geeks, Geezers and Googleization," And chapter nine was titled The Dumbest Generation. It was about millennials, and it was not an exercise in subtlety. Here's how the chapter begins.
2: What a difference a few decades can make. A young student was once embarrassed and his parents shamed by poor grades on a report card. A young worker was remorseful if he disappointed his boss.
0: But no longer, Ira wrote. The basic decencies of past generations were absent in this one. Something fundamental had changed. This is a generation who grew up reading blogs instead of books. They read
2: updates about their friends on Facebook instead of reading current events in newspapers. They know more about World of Warcraft than they do about World War II.
0: All right, that crap does not need to be fact-checked, but I I just can't resist. Let's dive into that last one. They know more about World of Warcraft than they do about World War II. That's not some... Turn a phrase from Ira. that's building off news stories that you can find about how young people just don't know all sorts of critical historical information. Go ahead and Google and, for example, you'll find a Washington Post piece from 2008 with this headline. Holocaust study.
2: Two thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is.
0: But here's a fun game to play with news stories about surveys. Look at the actual data. If you do, you'll often discover fascinating little things. In fact, that's what I just did for that Washington Post story. Two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. Huh. All right, let's see. So this is a claim based on a survey conducted by an organization called the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, And that organization hired a firm called Showin Consulting to actually conduct the study. And Showin Consulting's website says that the company, quote, conducts high level research, develops winning messaging, and optimizes strategies and tactics for our numerous corporate and political clients across the globe, end quote. Develops winning messaging, huh? Kind of a weird thing for a supposedly impartial survey conductor to be saying, but okay, now let's look at the data. The website built to promote this study doesn't actually offer a full breakdown of all the data, but it does link to a top-line result. And from this, we learned that the study was done by interviewing 1,350 people. And they asked these people a series of basic questions about the Holocaust. Like, for example, have you ever seen or heard the word Holocaust before? What does the term Holocaust refer to? And then the study reveals people's answers. But the answers are only broken up into two categories. There's answers from all U.S. adults and answers from millennials. So for example, that first question, have you ever seen or heard the word Holocaust before? Of all U.S. adults, 89% said yes, definitely, and 7% said yes, I think so. And of all millennials, 78% said yes, definitely, and 13% said yes, I think so. And it goes on like that, all U.S. adults versus millennials. Neither group nails all the answers, and the millennial group is usually just a little less informed than the all-U.S. adults group. For example, 55% of all U.S. adults could name at least one concentration camp, while slightly fewer of millennials could do it at only 51%. Now, dig into the demographic data, and who do we have here? Who's answering all of these questions? The all-U.S. adults group contains more white people, more religious people, and more Jews than the group of millennials. And 18% of the all-U.S. adults group is over the age of 65, which is to say you've likely got people in that mix who were literally alive during the Holocaust. And I don't say any of that to excuse millennials who don't know basic information about the Holocaust, but rather, I say it to point out that the all-U.S. adult group has some splaining to do as well. But you don't get that in the news coverage of this survey, because by breaking the categories up into just all-U.S. adults and millennials, Showin Consulting was able to, quote, develop winning messaging, end quote, that was sure to snag the attention of reporters who knew that people would go crazy for stories about how millennials don't know anything about the Holocaust. It's, in fact too good a story to fact-check, or at least too good to add contextual information around. And that is how you get a headline that says,
2: Holocaust Study. Two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is.
0: Instead of a headline that says,
2: Holocaust Study. Slightly fewer millennials know what Auschwitz is compared to all U.S. adults.
0: And now, Pause for a second to consider how absolutely fucked up that is. And I don't use profanity on this show often, but man, is that fucked up. Could you imagine being the person at Show Consulting that's like, hmm, we've got to get attention for our clients, so you know what we should do? Let's craft a survey about the murder of six million Jews during World War II that'll make millennials look foolish. Oh my God, guys. Shame on you. Shame on you. But really, should we be surprised? We shouldn't. You know why? Here's why. Kids! I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. This is a refrain as old as time. And I don't just mean as old as Bye Bye Birdie. You can go all the way back to ancient Roman literature to find it. There's certainly recurring themes. This is Richard Saller, a professor of classics and history at Stanford University.
3: One is that young sons tend to be footloose and careless and uh, likely to fall in love with a prostitute. This is in Roman literature. And then the other theme that is recurrent is that the women are becoming more independent and husbands are losing control. So uh, th- there's a lot of rhetoric about decline in the family, and this is echoed actually over centuries, not just generations, but over centuries.
0: Centuries indeed. We're stuck in the strangest of cycles in which every generation loves to sound the alarm about the fatal defects of the youth. You are young, you're insulted as lesser than, and then you grow older and hurl the same insults at the people who come next. But people always seem to forget how the story turns out. The next generation is fine, capable, better even. Some of its members will slouch offshore, but others will step up and carry the world forward. I mean, look around. Everything we know, everything that we have ever relied upon or been impressed by or adored or treasured or desired was created by a generation who had been dismissed by the one before it. If we worsened over generations rather than improved, we'd have nothing. We'd be banging our heads against the ruin of the pyramids. But instead, we built the modern world. Our lives today are incontrovertible evidence that everyone from ancient Roman writers to Ira the business consultant were wrong, all of them, every time, without exception, period. But you already know that. So on this episode of Pessimist Archive, let's not just point out the foolish mistakes of the older generation. Let's seek to answer an important question. Why do we all keep doing this? And why can't we stop the cycle, each generation being unfairly dismissed, only to grow old and repeat the same mistake? I have an answer. It's because we're afraid. I'll explain what I mean after the break. All right, we're back. So before we try to understand exactly why the older generation continually hates on the younger generation, let's get an appreciation for the real depth of this problem. It crosses time and culture, and it's so old that even by the time of ancient Rome, it was already getting the bye-bye birdie treatment, which is to say it was already such a common refrain that it could be knowingly portrayed in theater. Here's Richard Saller again talking about Plautus, the Romans' earliest known comedy writer who was born in 254 BC.
3: Plautus actually has one of his father figures Um, wonder whether his view of the degenerate younger generation It's just a matter of his imagination or whether it's real.
0: Scholars of European, African, Chinese, and Japanese history all tell me that their texts also contain some versions of youth-hating. I mean, pick a time, pick a place, and you will find it. Renaissance writers complained of rowdy youth who'd sing bawdy songs in inappropriate social settings. In pre-colonial Africa, a youth wasn't considered a full-fledged person until they'd gone through an initiation, and even then they weren't fully respected until they became a parent. Mao Zedong launched the Cultural Revolution in part because he said he'd feared the younger generation had become too soft. And softness is an interesting thing to pause on here because it's a common part of the older generation's complaint. The younger generation, they say, they just weren't built like we were. They're soft or entitled or coddled. And then the older generation points to something that we all have lost as a result of this softness. It's like, you know, something was good, but it will crumble in the next generation's hands because they're too soft. Today, the problem is often work. These coddled kids won't grind it out at the office the way their forebears did. I mean, that's what Ira Wolf's book was about. But for the 14th century Japanese monk Yoshida Kenko, it was about language. Here's what he wrote.
2: The ordinary spoken language
0: has also steadily coarsened. People used to say, raise the carriage shifts or trim the lamp wick. But people today say,
2: raise it or trim it.
0: And for writer Anna A. Rogers, writing in The Atlantic in 1907, it was the institution of marriage that was being damaged by softness. Here's from her essay.
4: The rock upon which most of the flower-bedecked marriage barges go to pieces is the latter-day cult of individualism, the worship of the brazen calf of the
0: self. We started digging around for more examples of youth bashing, and they are everywhere. It is a deluge. If I stuffed everything we found into this episode, it would balloon into like a 16-hour audiobook. So instead, I thought that we should go through some of the examples in a different way, by playing a game with two people who understand what the kids are up to these days. Can you please introduce yourselves?
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Jamula. You want
4: to tell them what you do?
1: <laughs> All right, let's we'll take that back. <laughs> hey everyone, I'm Jen Jamula, the co-host of Two Girls One Podcast. And I'm Allie Goldberg, and I'm the other girl of the Two Girls One Podcast. And if you want to know what that one podcast is about, we uh, interview people behind different internet communities and phenomena that we find fascinating.
0: So, guys, mm-hmm. I have brought you onto Pessimist Archive to play a game I'm calling A Tale of Two Utes. See what I did there? It was good. I
4: get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. With you. Thank you.
0: And here's how the game works. I'm going to read you five quotes of somebody criticizing the youth of their day. These are five different people. And you have to guess whether the quote is from modern times and talking about millennials or if it's from the early 1900s and talking about somebody else. So each quote, uh, millennials or 100 years ago, somebody else. That makes sense? (laughs) Okay.
4: Yeah. Got it.
0: All right. Here it is. First quote. The youth of today are beautiful, pretentious children that thoughtlessly flick away the bothering trifles that generations have built up. They have egotistically and ruthlessly swept any of the conventions of the past ages away and left themselves with no moral standards for guidance. So... Is that talking about millennials or is that a hundred years ago talking about somebody else? It's
1: old as fuck. A hundred years ago. That's my vote. I was thinking that, but I'm going to say now because you used the word egotistically. And I don't think we were talking about the ego a hundred years ago.
0: But that's ah, just interesting.
4: <clears throat> I heard the use of the word trifles and some other things that nobody <laughs> uses anymore, I think.
0: <laughs> so I thought that this one would be easy. It is indeed from 100 years ago. It's from ah. 1929. I know it was just had a lot of oldie language Nailed to it. it. So this was from a University of California debate. They were debating whether or not the breakdown of conventions is detrimental to the youth of today. And that is hyphenated today.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, that word used to be hyphenated.
0: Uh, it did. Well, I think in some oh. ways it was just. I don't know it was the on rule a new of line. It, I see it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Here is number two. The best case scenario is you'll have an entire population growing up and going through life and never really finding joy. They'll never really find deep, deep fulfillment in work and life. Oh, what? I'll say that's now. I'm gonna also say old. I like the split. The split well, yeah. is good. <laughs> you know, it, it makes it feel very dramatic.
4: <laughs> yeah. You better add some suspenseful music here.
0: Yeah, uh, here it is. Okay. 2016.
4: Simon oh, Sinek. Yes. Wow. Oh, all right. Twenty sixteen. Because now I'm battling Jen.
0: Just to add to what he what he was saying there, uh, just just to f- fully reveal his position. This is what Simon Sinek said. What this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things that really really matter, like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self confidence, a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time.
4: I would have pegged to the now, but when I was saying about the joy, like, because there's also a complaint that millennials like will will leave a job that they don't love. And anyway, well, I was wrong. Let's move on.
0: All right, here is number three. Not only do they lack the kind of empathy that allows them to feel concerned for others, but they also have trouble even intellectually understanding others' points of view.
1: Ooh, I'm gonna say now. I'm that gonna sounds say like now. Tech obsessed, yeah. digital native, millennial thing. Yeah.
0: You were both correct. 2013, Time Magazine. Do you remember the cover? It was the Me, Me, Me generation I remember.
1: But it's always the Me, Me, Me
0: generation. You know what I mean? All right, here's number four. They're never self-starters like the kids were when I was a boy. They lead synthetic lives. Instead of doing things for themselves, they have everything done for them. We kids dug pirate caves. These youngsters see movie reels of pirates instead.
4: Oh, I was gonna say now till you said pirate caves and movie reels. <laughs>
0: Yeah, a hundred years ago. Yes, 1933. A column by Elsie Robinson called "Listen, World," and the headline was "Is Modern Youth a Dim Bulb?" Oh, <laughs> wow!
4: How harsh.
0: It, the yeah. people
4: used to build? they used to dig pirate caves?
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't. That I, sounds I, I great. Don't, Let's I'm do that. I'm not aware of the digging of pirate caves. What is a pirate
4: yeah. cave? I thought pirates were on land. I guess to bury their treasure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it.
4: I need well, to find an old I don't have any person. personal
1: experience with that, but I yeah. think so. Kay. Yeah.
0: Number five. We defy anyone who goes about with his eyes open to deny that there is, as never before, an attitude on the part of young folk which is best described as grossly thoughtless, rude, and utterly selfish. Ooh. That could go either way. I'll say now just for fun. I could totally go either
4: way. I'll say old just for fun. It is
0: 1925, The Conduct of Young People in the Hull Daily Mail.
4: Wow. Yeah. All right. It's absurd how the complaints are the same every time.
0: <laughs> They're exactly the same. You know, so what's so yeah. funny about these is that people are writing as if they are describing something very specific. But when you put these things up against each other, they could be from any time at all. There's yeah. nothing specific about what these people are thinking.
1: Yeah, we're talking about an inherent selfishness that younger people have, but they just do. <laughs> Let's not condemn them for it. <laughs>
4: Well, I mean, it's like also you're young. You have a lot of you're figuring out yourself you're like it, it makes sense.
0: Do. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and is that a problem or is that just youth and we all need to accept it? I
1: think it's human nature. Let's make the best of it. Let's make it an exploratory time and not judge people. That's so true. Says the millennial Ugh, kids today.
0: Thank you guys so much yeah. for playing for my sure. stupid game.
1: That was really interesting. <laughs> it was fun. Anytime.
0: Okay, back from the game. But here's the thing about all those quotes that Jen and Allie just heard they all came from older people criticizing younger people. That's usually how this works, of course. But it's important to note that young people get into the act, too. They're bashing their own generation. For example, there's this 1980 piece that ran in the Washington Monthly called Fear of Success, which paints the youth of the day as so lazy and dispirited that they literally aspire to nothing. These kids of 1980, and uh, here's a direct quote from the piece, quote, believe it foolish to gamble for accomplishments when accomplishments will cause more to be expected of them." End quote. The author of this was Greg Easterbrook, and at the time, he was exactly as old as the people he was criticizing. He was taking on his own generation, accusing his fellow 20-somethings of longing for boring and unchallenging jobs and self-sabotaging their romantic relationships and even refusing to vote for fear of believing in change. Greg Easterbrook would go on to have a long and successful career as a journalist and author, and I was curious what he thinks of all this today. You know, now that almost four decades have passed since he wrote that piece, and he got to see how his generation actually turned out. Do you think that when, in 1980, when you wrote that and had this view of your generation, that you envisioned your generation coming out of it?
5: Yeah, that, 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 that wasn't in... The piece, if you'd asked me that in 1980, I would have taken a negative view of thinking, oh my God, things are so screwed up. How are we ever going to bounce back from this? And if you, when you asked me that today, I would say, well, my generation has done an approximately average job.
0: And I get the sense that for Greg, a approximately average job is actually a pretty decent compliment. Later in our conversation, he'd even call his generation relatively accomplished. He's happy with how his generation opened up to acceptance of sex and different people and general culture. And now that he looks back, he sees his own responses to his generation as part of a pattern, one in which each generation has super high hopes for itself and then gets disappointed and then comes to accept its own accomplishments. It's a pattern that you can see beginning All over today. I mean, just listen to these self criticisms from millennials and Gen Zers as they complain that their peers are too entitled or lazy or sensitive or self obsessed or whatever the case is. And sometimes, like New York Post writer Johnny Olasinski, they even get to go on Fox and Friends and feed themselves whole to Fox News' audience of hungry old people.
5: Yeah, because the the title of your piece, "I'm a millenni I'm a Millennial, and my generation sucks," just talks about how the Millennials don't get off the
3: couch very often.
5: They don't. It's uh, actually, I wrote another piece for the Post not long ago about uh, Millennials being the shut-in generation. And I interviewed several who will spend whole weekends at home, very proudly, just binge watching Orange Is the New Black,
0: yeah. or doing a Snapchat, or doing a Snapchat. Ah man, the irony of a bunch of people on TV making their audience feel smug by talking about a different audience of people who sit and watch different TV. God. But anyway, all of this, of course, raises a question. What propels this cycle? Why does each generation go through this self-loathing before coming out on the other side? Greg Easterbrook has a theory because, you know, he grew up hearing a very particular thing about his generation, a thing that the older generation kept telling him.
5: My generation, clearly we hear all the rhetoric about the greatest generation wins World War II, overcomes the depression. These are great achievements. What have people my age ever done that compares to that? I think you could find that cyclically in history, the young worry that they're not as good as the old.
0: He heard it from his elders. You know, it's like that old public service announcement. Who taught
2: you how to do this stuff?
0: You, all right? I learned it by watching you. You taught it to me, Dad! You did! But you know, seriously, that actually literally is what's happening. They learned it from watching us. When the older generation criticizes the younger generation, that doesn't fall on deaf ears. I mean, you think young people don't hear that? They hear it. They internalize it. I mean, oh, what monsters we become. We bring a new generation into this world only to convince them of their shortcomings. We send children off into the future, telling them that the greatest moments have already passed. Telling them that we were better than them. That we'll always have been better than them. And that no matter what they do in this world, no matter how hard they try, they'll never top us. We did it right. We did it perfectly. We watched Fox and Friends instead of Snapchatting our way through Orange is the New Black. So the bar is set impossibly possibly high, kids, and you might as well give up now. So with that, it's finally time that we got to the big question. Why do we do this whole thing? Why do we participate in this terrible cycle, this ceaseless insulting of the next generation? What is possibly the purpose of it all? And now, there are no shortage of theories to answer this question. Just Google around, you'll find a million of them. For example, there's a popular Quora thread headlined, Why do older generations seem to love criticizing younger generations? And it it looks like it's mostly millennials answering the question. But to get a sense of it, to get a sense of the way that people talk about this, here are a few answers from this thread, word for word. It's because people of the previous generation have the inability to adapt.
4: Tribalism is human nature. We like to organize ourselves into groups, both by joining like people and opposing unlike people.
2: It sucks becoming old. You become less attractive, less physically capable, and to some degree, mental abilities decline. People stop paying attention to you. As a result, people become cranky and defensive and constantly want to relive their glory days by contrasting them with what they see in front of them.
1: We all crave safety and many people feel safe by building walls of principles. This is
0: good this is wrong. This is not like this. Because there's nothing better to do. I love that last one. It's like, well, hey, Fox and Friends is over and the early bird buffet doesn't open for a few hours, so we might as well hate on some millennials. But as I read a ton of explanations like this, I kept feeling like, you know, there's got to be something deeper, something more fundamentally human, something that gives this generational divide some kind of purpose. It can't just be random bias. It it has to be the result of something, a symptom of something. And that is how I ended up learning about, oh, you're never going to guess. Seriously, it's it's so random, you're never going to guess.
5: The basis of all legal relationships in the Middle Ages was land.
0: Land rights in the Middle Ages. Who knew? That's Andrew Raven. He's been on our show a bunch of times before. He's an English professor at the University of Louisville with a specialty in early medieval law and literature. And I'd originally called Andrew, figuring that he'd have some good examples of Anglo-Saxon old people hating on, you know, the millennials of the 10th century. And oh, yeah, I mean, no problem there.
5: There is a very clear sense that, say, in Beowulf, with the death of Beowulf, that Um, the age of heroes has passed and that the the younger generation is not as heroic.
0: Though Andrew says that's often a staple of epic tales going back to Homer and surely beyond. It was the age of heroes and now all we do is make podcasts. But, you know, those stories are just stories we tell. What about the lives of everyday people? That's how Andrew and I ended up on the subject of land rights. So Andrew started telling me about how land was the basis of all legal relationships in the Middle Ages. And stick with me here because this actually does come back around to our central question about why old people hate the young. So all right, land. Land is everything. Land is status, it's economic opportunity, it's power. And if land is also the center of legal relationships, that means that land was also the basis of family relationships as well, which means it's the guiding force from one generation to the next.
5: So that doesn't mean that parents didn't love their children, children didn't love their parents. But when you're talking about law, right, the primary purpose of the family unit was to ensure the proper descent of land.
0: And just to hammer this point home, this is also why rape was conceived of as a crime in the Middle Ages. It wasn't actually because of any perception of women's rights. I mean. Would you expect otherwise? No, rape was a problem because if it resulted in a child, it would confuse the descent and inheritance of land. And land, as we've established, was everything. But here's the thing about land. Because it's meant to be passed down from one generation to the next, that means that you, the parent, the person who owns the land, will at some point actually pass the land down from one generation to the next. The rules were different in each community, the age that a child has to be before they receive the land and the reasons why land would be passed. But the point is, at some point, a parent may face one of two options, either pass down the land or refuse.
5: In which case, they have a real interest in either keeping their child at an age of minority as long as possible through whatever means necessary, or of finding ways of retaining the land, possibly illegally. For instance, by burning all the legal documents or claiming that the legal documents had been lost that dictated that the land would have to be passed along.
0: So, a parent is supposed to pass land to their child. And if the parent doesn't, and instead pulls an Enron scandal and destroys the documents, then the child might sue the parents to get the land. And this would happen a lot, enough so that Andrew was actually able to write an entire academic paper on it. So, for example, here's a real-world example that he found from sometime between the years 916 and 935. And buckle up, because this thing is about to get Game of Thrones. So, all right, there's a kid named Edwin, and he is a Edwin, son of Enion.
2: I am Edwin, son of Enion.
0: And Enion died when Edwin was young. That meant Ennian's land defaulted to his wife, who is Edwin's mom. But then Edwin became of age, and Edwin was like, The land is mine now. But Edwin's mom didn't want to give up the land. So Edwin sued his mom, and the case ended up in front of the chief judge, whose name was, no joke, Thurkill the White.
2: My name is Thurkill the White.
0: So chief judge Thurkill the White called Edwin and his mom into court to settle the matter. The question of the day. Who should own this land, Edwin or his mom? And here's what the surviving court record tells us about what happened next.
5: So the mother then, the sen- she um, swells up with anger, we're told in the document, which is a sort of interesting moment in itself. And she rewrites her will on the spot to benefit the wife of the chief, chief judge rather than her own child.
0: Shocking twist! (laughs) Right there in the court, the mom is like, Oh, hello, Chief Judge Thurkill the White. I have an idea. This land doesn't belong to my son. It should belong to your lovely wife. And what do you think Thurkill the White has to say about this? Well? The land is mine now.
2: The court
5: rules in the mother's favor. The mother gets to keep the land. But at her death, the land goes to the family of the chief judge.
0: And what happened to Edwin, who now had no land? That part is lost to history. So by now, you're surely wondering two things. One, why hasn't someone started a death metal band and named it Thurkill the White? And that's a that's a very good question. Maybe you should do it. And question number two, why have we spent the last few minutes learning about medieval land disputes? And that's also a very good question. I have I have no idea. I just thought it was interesting. Kidding! I kid! It's because as Andrew Rabin was researching all of these land disputes and watching these parents find sneaky ways to separate their land from their children, it occurred to Andrew that this is a representation of exactly why older generations look down upon younger generations. It isn't out of some sense of malice or confusion or frustration. It's out of fear.
5: A child is a reminder of mortality, right? Once you have a child, you can get Uh, displaced. And so when you dismiss children, when you say that they are not living up to the standards of the older generation, part of what you're saying is that this child cannot replace me. This child isn't good enough to replace me. I am in some sense irreplaceable. My mortality, you know, I've conquered my mortality in that way. I have shown that I am too important to be replaced by this person whose basic job in the world is to replace me. And that's the anxiety in part that comes with these lawsuits about land, right? Because once the child gains the land, the child has replaced the parent.
0: Why call the next generation lazy? Because that means you're still valuable. Why call the next generation entitled? Because that means you're still reliable, that you still deserve the land, that the land can't survive without you land. It's so simple, so basic that it reflects our basic humanity. Now, this, I think, is what it really means to create the generation that will replace us. We talk of children in terms of continuity, right? I mean, we say they carry on our traditions. They take our names. We delight in how they look like us and act like us and think like us. We want our kids to adopt our politics and our causes and our sense of meaning. In our children, we seek immortality. But then they grow up and we discover they're not us. They are their own people. They'll find their own politics and their own causes and their own sense of meaning. They're more interested in the future than the past. They'll know their parents' names, of course, and probably their grandparents' names, but perhaps not their great-grandparents' names and certainly not their great-great-grandparents' names. Which means that one day they'll have children and those children will have children and our names will begin to be forgotten too. We will slip into nothingness, remembered by nobody having left no recognizable impact. That's why we say those kids are no good. We can't accept that life goes on without us. And instead of accepting it, we lay the blame for the whole state of affairs at the feet of the next generation. And yet, every once in a while, the cycle is momentarily broken. The old grump, the one bitterly protecting his own mortality, will stop and look around with clear eyes. So let's take a moment to celebrate a man who did just that. Remember Ira Wolf from the beginning of this episode? He's the business consultant who wrote the book Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization" and spent a chapter describing millennials as the dumbest generation.
3: They were this horrible, spoiled, rotten, narcissistic, egotistical, lazy generation.
0: But even as Ira was writing that book and even as he was advising his clients to beware of millennials, he was starting to realize that the narrative he'd heard about this generation didn't actually match the young people he'd meet
3: we go out to dinner a lot we'll we'll go to a late movie and then we'll you know oftentimes we'll we'll go to a a local restaurant and we might even sit at the bar although you know my favorite drink is a diet coke um but we'll sit there and it's like you know i listen to these young you know lazy narcissistic egotistical kids who were you know they were either starting up companies they were entrepreneurs they this the the gig that they had at the restaurant as a server or as a bartender were all like third jobs, you know, and they were going to school and they were working. You know, so it was somewhat that there was this paradox. I heard on one side, you know, I I was writing about this really lazy generation and this bad group of kids and what we were going to do when they all grew up. And yet the people, the
0: millennials I was meeting weren't the same. And so, you know, I started to question that. And he started to realize, you know, this generation was just entering the workforce during a recession. There were no jobs. They had to create their own way and do things that didn't fit what an older generation might recognize as a respectable career path. And now look at their hustle. Look at their determination. So after a while, he started to change his mind. He began calling himself a recovering millennial basher. And when clients called him up asking for advice on hiring and they started complaining about the millennials on their staff, he'd tell them this. First of all, you got to change your mindset.
3: I mean, if all you're attracting is egotistical, lazy, narcissistic, uh, uneducated kids, it's. It's a marketing problem. It's an image problem because you're hanging out with the wrong people.
0: Every generation has good and bad people. And if you're a company that's hiring millennials, but your executives don't actually trust millennials, well, that becomes pretty obvious pretty fast. The good millennials will sniff that out in a second and they'll go elsewhere where they have a right to be valued. All that you'll be left with is the bad. You get what you give. And you know, it's funny, as Ira told me all this, he began talking about his own generation, which is the baby boomers, and how some of them are just as entitled and narcissistic as the millennials they attack, which made me think to ask him something. Do you remember, as a baby boomer, what the older generation said about you when
3: you were young? Oh yeah, the same thing. Um, We were lazy, narcissistic, uh, egotistical, idealistic, promiscuous.
0: The same thing. When the baby boomers were kids, they were insulted by the older generation. Then the baby boomers became the older generation and insulted the next generation in the same way. You know what this sounds like, right? It's a generation-long abusive cycle. And it's not like this is some new observation. We found a 1928 newspaper column called Random Ramblings, which was written by Uh, somebody who just called themselves the Rambler, which I guess, sure, why not? Anyway, it's in the Edwardsville Intelligencer of Illinois, and it was talking about how every day a new expert seemed to have an opinion on the modern youth, saying that they were corrupt or pure, leaving people with no idea what to think. And then the Rambler, 1928, concluded with this. So the discussion goes on interminably. History dictates the bemoaner of young folks has always been an issue. It seems to be in controversy today. Perhaps it will never be settled. No, no, Rambler, but it can be settled because the saddest, strangest, and yet ultimately most hopeful part of this cycle is this. The evidence to defeat the cycle is already in our hands. It's in each of us each of us having come from some generation that was dismissed and discouraged, that was spat upon by the people that came before us, and yet what did we do? Did we fail as hard as they wanted us to? No! We rose. We flourished. We contributed to advancements in science and technology and arts and culture. We were kinder and more open-minded than those that came before us. We broke down more barriers. We achieved. We continue to achieve. And we will achieve more before we're done. We are proof that the older generation's insults were worthless. We are all the evidence we need. But as we compliment ourselves for all of our accomplishments, let's at the same time swallow a slightly bitter pill. And here it is. Despite all we've done, we're not actually special. History will not remember us as unique. We're just the latest in a long line of accomplished generations, and the line will keep going. We're as good as they were. We're as good as they'll become. We're sandwiched in between. The greatest thing that we can do then is use our time wisely to tend to our land as best we can, and to support the people who will one day take that land over. Because someone will eventually take it over. That part is inevitable. So don't worry. That is the best that I have to offer. So don't worry. The land will be just fine. We'll all be just fine. And that's our episode. But wait, I've got one last thing for you. This episode largely focused on the English-speaking world and the way that its older generations grumble about the younger generations. But of course, generational divides are a universal issue. So I got to wondering, what does it sound like in other languages? And I assembled a pretty cool answers with voices around the world, and I'll share all of that in a minute. But first, have you subscribed to Pessimist Archive wherever you get your podcasts? If not, Please do that so you won't miss an episode and leave us a review, too. You can also follow us on Twitter at PessimistArc, that's Pessimists A-R-C, where we're constantly tweeting out the ill-conceived words of pessimists throughout history. Or visit our website, pessimists.co, where we have links to some of the things discussed in this episode. And we love hearing from our listeners, so please drop us a line, pessimistarchive at gmail.com. Thanks to the people I interviewed in this episode, Ira Wolf, Richard Saller, Greg Easterbrook, Pessimist Archive regular Andrew Rabin, and of course, Ali and Jen from Two Girls One Podcast. Definitely check that show out. Many of the voices you heard this episode were from the actor and journalist Brent Rose, who among other things, gave me a very difficult decision of which Thurkill the White voice to choose from.
2: My name is Thurkill the White. My name is Thurkill the White. My name is Thurkill the White. My name is Thurkill the White.
0: And we also heard the voice of Matt Silverman, who is Ali and Jen's producer, as well as a guy I found on Fiverr who goes by Koji Sano. This episode you just heard is an extended version of a story I originally wrote for Medium. We'll link to it in our website. And thanks to Joe Cohane, the original editor of that story, who was also the guy to come up with the idea for the story, as well as Elizabeth Breyer, who helped out with the research. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. Pessimist Archive is supported in part by the Charles Koch Foundation. Learn more about the foundation at ckf.org tech. The Pessimist Archive team, this episode included Louis Anslow and Chris Cornelis, we were recorded by Charlie Culbert at DeGraw Sound and edited by Alec Baylis. And now, back to my question from a minute ago. What do cranky older generations sound like in other countries and languages? To find out, I asked my Instagram audience from around the world to send me little audiograms. I, I wanted them to say and then explain a common phrase in their language that's used to dismiss young people. And some really wonderful stuff came in. So here's a sampling of that.
4: My name is Matab Hariri Salahi. In Persian we say and it's usually expressed with a superiority tone. It means before turning to a sour grape, you have become a musket raisin. It refers to the wisdom and experience
1: and what older people say to the younger to set a tone. Hi, I'm Stephanie Drogo, and in Mexico and Spain we say Perro viejo, no ladra en vano. an old dog doesn't bark in vain. And that means that the elder knows better how to detect the danger or bad deals.
4: I am Ashraf. In Tunisian Arabic, we say, It's used by all the people to say that young people are just motivated and that
2: they know nothing about what they are talking about. I am Rishab, and in India we say, which translates to, my hair did not turn white for no reason, which means my hair is white Yours is black. My and white for many reasons than just aging.
1: My name is Maria and in Guatemala we say, Más sabe el diablo por viejo que por diablo. This is a saying older people tell younger ones, which means that the devil is wise because of his age, rather than because he is the devil himself.
4: My name is Hustan Raza, and I'm from Asia, Pakistan. So this phrase that I'm going to share with you guys, it's in Urdu. And it really has that that haughtiness element, the arrogance that you actually show while losing or probably uh, winning an argument. And it actually means that you're coming up with an analogy, a comparison, that the kind of experience you possess in a certain topic is much more than the other person's entire lifespan.
0: That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Jason Pfeiffer, and we'll see you in the near future.